is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Good day, good day. Welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am delighted to be here to speak with you today. This is Dr. Carla Manning. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited because I'm sharing some information today to help you on your journey as a champion, as an advocate for racial justice, for equity, for inclusion, et cetera, within your, within your school or organization. And one of the things that I think that we have to talk a lot about that we don't talk about enough, I don't see or I don't hear these conversations being had often. But today's podcast is going to be about how we can center racial equity in our data collection, data analyses, processes, or methodologies. And this is important because what we know, and when I say we, I mean society at large uh, generally, but when we learn information about individuals, about communities, cultural groups, Primarily, we get a lot of our information from different sources, you know, from the media, from our own experiences. But we also receive information from published research, from academic research. And so then there is a responsibility on researchers, people who collect and analyze research, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. There is a responsibility for researchers to be aware of and to implement practices within their data collection and data analyses practices, there is a responsibility to do so equitably. If we want to be serious about promoting equity and inclusion within classrooms, schools, organizations, and society at large, one point that we want to think about and that we have to think about is how do we collect data equitably and how do we analyze data equitably And how do the results, the findings, and the conclusions of these data that are collected, how do we then use these results and conclusions to create and better improve outcomes for all? So in today's podcast, I'm going to talk about this very topic through a lens of racial equity. And of course, I have the website where I receive this information from. So I'm I'm actually going to read a lot of this in verbatim. Sometimes I do this on this podcast where I just share information and don't give too much of my insight, but I'm happy to share someone else's ideas. So today's podcast comes from the International Journal of Population Data Science, IJPDS.org. And the name of this publication is, quote, a framework for censoring racial equity throughout the administrative data life cycle. And this was published last year in 2020, volume five, issue three. The authors of this publication are Amy Hahn Nelson and Sharon Zanti, both coming out of UPenn, UPenn University of Pennsylvania. So what I'm going to do is read some of this this research. (laughs) I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to read what I think is noteworthy and definitely worthy of discussion. Of course, all of it is, but, you know, just for time and space, I'm not going to read everything. So I'm going to read the abstract. I'm going to read some of their main ideas and then the conclusion. All right, so let's just go ahead and get into this. Abstract, all right? So yeah, I'm going to read the abstract, a little bit of the abstract, and they have it broken down. So introduction here. Data integration by local and state governments is undertaken for the public good to support the interconnected needs of families and communities. 
Though data infrastructure is a powerful tool to support equity-oriented reforms, racial equity is racially censored or prioritized as a core goal for data integration. This raises fundamental concerns as integrated data increasingly provide the raw materials for evaluation, research, and risk modeling. Generally, institutions have not adequately examined and acknowledged structural bias in their history or the ways in which data reflect systemic racial inequities in the development and administration of policies and programs. Meanwhile, civic data users and the public are rarely consulted in the development and use of data systems. Here's the objective. This paper presents a framework and site-based examples of, quote, work in action that were collaboratively generated by a civic data stakeholder work group from across the U.S. in 2019-2020. Methods. Purposeful sampling was used to curate a diverse 15-person work group that used participatory action research and public deliberation to co-create a framework of best practices. Results and conclusion. Results. This framework aims to support agencies seeking to acknowledge and compensate for the harms and bias baked into data and practice. It is organized across six stages of the administrative data life cycle. Planning, data collection, data access, use of algorithms and statistical tools, analyses, and lastly, reporting and dissemination. For each stage, the framework includes positive and problematic practices for censoring racial equity with site-based examples of, quote, work in action from across the U.S. Using this framework, the work group then developed a toolkit for censoring racial equity throughout data integration, a resource that has been broadly disseminated across the U.S. And then conclusions, findings indicate that censoring racial equity within data integration efforts is not a binary outcome, but rather a series of small steps towards more equitable practice. There are countless ways to censor racial equity across the data lifecycle, and this framework provides concrete strategies for organizations to begin to grow that work in practice. So again, I'm not going to read everything here, even though it is worthy. Um, if you are interested, it is worthy of reading in more detail. And the link is provided. What I'm doing now is scrolling down because I want to read some of their results. In this article, the authors have sort of sectioned off some of their results. So they have different sections, racial equity and planning, racial equity and data collection, racial equity and data access. And then they've all, they also have information on racial equity in all of the six tenets that I just mentioned, racial equity and algorithms and stats, and then racial equity and data analysis. This is the part that I want to read. I want to read this part. And why do I want to specifically read the section on racial equity and data analysis? Because from my training in academic research and data collection methods or data analysis methods, the process of data analysis is probably one of the most time-consuming, most thought-provoking, but in my opinion, my humble opinion, probably the most important aspect of all the research process, the research collection and research analysis process, is the process for which we analyze the data. Because this is where meaning-making happens. This is where we make sense of what we've collected. This is where we make sense of people's experiences their stories, narratives, what the numbers are showing, what the numbers are telling, et cetera. This is where we make sense of everything. And not only do we make sense of this data, this is also the space where we ask questions about what we are seeing and reading and observing within our data. 
And then this is also the beginning stages of where we begin to produce new thoughts, where we begin to produce new ideas and generate new conclusions about what we have done in terms of collecting data. So the process of the analysis, where we really take what we've acquired bit by bit and analyze it, question it, critique it, pull it apart, put it back together again, sew it up, all of that happens in the data analysis process. And so a lot of the ideas that come from any sort of research study, regardless of what the topic is about, that meat is found in the data analysis process. You know, I remember when I was in graduate school and, you know, I forget who told me, but I I heard it from somewhere. I can't recall if it was a professor or if it was another colleague, another student. But someone told me like, you know, Carla, when it's time for you to read this research, don't think that you have to read through everything. Read the introduction read, you know, how they collected the data and then just scroll down to the analysis. (laughs) You know, you don't need to read all the other stuff. And I'm not going to lie. You know, I didn't do that, of course, every single time. But after a while, that became sort of an informal habit where just for me to get access to this high level information, at the very least, let me understand the analysis. So let me read to you what these authors have to say about centering racial equity and data analysis. This is good. A racial equity lens during data analysis incorporates individual, community, political, and historical contexts of race to inform analyses, conclusions, and recommendations. Solely relying on statistical outputs will not necessarily lead to insights without careful consideration of data quality, disaggregation, and statistical power. However, disaggregation is also a series of trade-offs. Without disaggregating data by subgroup, analyses can unintentionally gloss over inequity and lead to invisible experiences. Alternatively, creating a subgroup may shift the focus to a population that is already over-surveilled. Given the complex series of decisions inherently involved in censoring equity within analysis, iterative work with strong participation from a variety of stakeholders is critical. So what I'm going to do, the authors have provided some problematic practices with racial equity and data analysis, and then they've also provided some positive practices with racial equity and data analysis. So of course, I'm going to read both at the same time. So problematic practice number one, using intentionally dense language with low readability, especially for non-native language learners. Here's a positive practice to that. Develop differentiated messaging for different audiences that considers the appropriate level of detail and technical jargon, language length, format, etc. Problematic practice two with racial equity and data analysis. Reporting data that are not actionable or that are intended to be punitive, i.e., analyzing food purchase data to remove recipients from other public benefit programs. Here's a positive practice to offset that. Report results in an actionable form to improve the lives of those represented in the data. So going back to the same example, food deserts, i.e. analyzing food purchase data to identify food deserts and then guide development of grocery stores. Problematic practice number three with censoring racial equity and data analysis. Attempting to describe individual experiences with aggregate or, quote, whole population data without analyzing this disparate 
impact based on race, gender, and other intersections of identity. Here's a positive practice to offset that. Acknowledge structural racism or other harms to communities that are embedded in the data. So don't ignore folks' contextual experiences. Acknowledge it. And then the last problematic practice that is identified in this article, obscuring the analytic approach in a way that limits reproducibility. Here's a positive practice to offset that. Provide clear documentation of the data analysis process along with analytic files so that others can reproduce the results. All right. So let me unpack some of this if I can. Let me go back and unpack some of this because this is good. So essentially what I just read to give you a high level summary, when we are attempting, and when I say we, I mean teachers, researchers, scholars, community activists, school administrators, when we are making sense of data that we have about students, teachers, educational outcomes, et cetera, what are the thought processes that go on within our minds that allow us to see the data for what it is? as well as what biases might be at play that is playing a role in what we do not see. So a huge role in becoming an equitable researcher, particularly an equitable educational researcher, is for us to check our biases. See, this work of implicit bias is not just about teachers with students. This is a lifestyle. To say that we want to teach, lead, be, do, and have with an anti-racist mindset, that is a lifestyle. That's not something that's just for them over there or those folks with that color skin. No, it's for everybody, (laughs) for everybody. So let's go through some of these four problems that I identified and let's go through some of these positive practices. So going back up to the first one I mentioned about language. And I've noticed this in terms of language that is communicated that's not accessible. Because if we, as researchers, if we want people to understand our findings, understand our claims and our conclusions, and if we want these conclusions to have an impact, we have to also be aware of the level to which people can access our language and our findings. So to unpack that a little bit, it is a problem when as researchers, when we use language that's too dense, that's technically jargon-filled, language that might be a bit archaic, right? If we want folks to make sense of what we are writing and theorizing and concluding, we want to make sure that folks can access our ideas. So developing a differentiated messaging strategy for how research is analyzed and disseminated is it plays a huge role in centering racial equity in this work. I think the second practice that these authors identify or generate, I think is excellent. Reporting data that are not actionable or that are intended to be punitive. Oh, I thought that was deep. Because what are we saying with the data that we conclude? What are we saying about people? What are we saying about communities? And are we sharing data in a way that's meant to drive change? Or are we sharing data in a way that's meant to uphold oppressive systems and oppressive structures and oppressive paradigms? What are we doing with the research that we are communicating to people? What is the intended outcome? As a person, I would qualify myself as a social justice researcher. Of course, I'm on the side of the fence that says we need to disseminate and share research that's going to change people's lives. 
that's going to create some sort of a change and an impact in people in a transformative way. I'm not on the side of the fence that's using research to solidify stereotypes. I'm interested in conducting, analyzing, and sharing research that's thought-provoking. When I took Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings' class at UW-Madison, anyone who listens to this podcast can chime in with me that all we talked about was regimes of truth. (laughs) Anyone who took Gloria Lassen-Billings' class, anyone who took a course by Tom Popowitz, you know about these regimes of truth. So we have to produce research that is raising new questions about regimes of truth, about ourselves, about humans, about people, about society at large. So I think this one is spot on. And I'm so glad, let me reference the authors properly. I'm so glad that Nelson and Zanti shared this aspect of making research actionable. Because as researchers, if we're not going in that direction, are we then reproducing problematic, biased, oppressive, racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera, normalized structures of being? Are we doing that? Or are we producing research in a way that is meant to shift people's mindsets, that's meant to create new regimes of truth? I love Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings' class. I love her. <laughs> Seriously. Because that first semester in graduate school just changed my whole, I mean, it was like, like I had like mind breaks every day, every day. My mind was just being blown every day. So yes, are we using research in a way to improve people's lives? Are we doing that with our research? And is it actionable? Meaning that when someone looks at any sort of research finding, publication, article, book that has a significant amount of qualitative and or quantitative research, can people take action from that? Can people make changes in their personal lives, in their professional lives, with their students, with their staff, with their parents and families, within their communities? Can people take action? All right, let me unpack this third practice and something to describe individually. Oh, yeah, this one, describe individual experiences without analyzing the impact of race, gender, and other identity intersections, intersectionalities. This is important because when we analyze data without a particular context, in which folks are situated in, then what we are doing is we are ignoring them. We are ignoring that person. We are ignoring their humanity when we choose to not see people's individual experiences. So the extent to which we can analyze people's experiences within their particular cultural, social, political, and historical contexts, then that's how and why we can acknowledge structural racism or other forms of harm that have been done to people and to communities. That has to be acknowledged in our data collection and data analysis processes. And then the last way, I think this is also good because we're talking about peeling back the curtain, so to speak. And so the problematic practice that Zanti and Nelson mentioned here is to obscure. One problematic practice is when the analytic approach is obscured which means that there is no transparency in how the data was collected or how the data was analyzed. And so there is an ethical responsibility for researchers to share with communities, with their stakeholders, how the data was collected and how it was analyzed so that other people can reproduce it. And if people reproduce it, are they going to come to the same conclusions that you came up with? 
And so when we don't share this information, I would say what we are doing to some degree is we are upholding those exclusive power structures. It's saying that only I as the researcher have access to this information and this knowledge. And you as a reader or you as a constituent or a stakeholder, you don't have access to this knowledge. That's creating an unbalanced power structure right there. But for a researcher to provide clear documentation of the data analysis process and the analytic files, what that does is that peels back the curtain, that removes the curtain so that there are no um, blind sides here. People, there's, there's clear transparency and accountability. So this article is great. I'm glad that these researchers have taken this approach. I'm going to read the conclusion as well. We are at a pivotal moment, one in which the use of data is accelerating in both exciting and concerning ways. We have access to greater amounts of data than at any other point in our history, but practice lags behind, placing BIPOC, particularly those with intersecting marginalized identities, at the greatest risk of, quote, data intification of injustice, end quote. Acknowledging history, harm, and the potentially negative implications of data integration for groups marginalized by inequitable systems is a key first step, but it is only a first step. To censor racial equity, findings indicate that government agencies, researchers, and civic data users must censor the voices, stories, expertise, and knowledge of communities in decision-making. With inclusive participatory governance around data access and use, administrative data reuse can support collective action with shared power to improve outcomes and harness data for social good. We must continue to build understanding and support for adopting positive practices by acknowledging the harm of current problematic practices throughout the data life cycle. To move these conversations forward and see positive, equitable practices normed, resourced, and adopted, we must cultivate spaces where civic data users can come together and debate these nuanced topics in good faith to ensure ethical administrative data reuse. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Amy Hall Nelson, to Sharon Zanti out of UPenn. Thank you for this research because your insights, your perspectives, your conclusions are right on. They are necessary. They need to be heard. They need to be shared, which is why I'm sharing this information on this podcast because we need to talk about this. We need to talk about how we are analyzing data, how we are making sense of data. And as researchers and or people who are using this data, we need to also make sure that the use of data is being used to drive social good, create transformative impacts, and essentially create a more positive and just society. That's what we want. So thank you to Amy Hahn Nelson. Thank you to Sharon Zanti for your words. I'm happy to share this information on the Equity Experience podcast because this is necessary, is needed, is informative, is everything, is thought-provoking, and it's giving us some new paradigms in which we can adopt in our own work as teachers, as school administrators, as district leaders, and of course, as academic researchers. 
And until next time, thank you for listening to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning. Thank you for tuning in. It's been a pleasure and a joy being with you today and sharing this information. Be sure to come back and check with us next week for another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. Make sure to like, share, review, subscribe, do all of that to help keep this momentum going. Until next time, take care of yourselves, be well and be blessed. Bye-bye.